1am on July 5th, 2013, the 6,000 residents of Lac Megantic, a small railway town in the Estrie district, deep in the historic eastern townships, were celebrating the beginning of summer in their own ways. Most were settled in their beds, excited at having seen the new pleasure cruise boat the mayor had unveiled earlier that day. Others were busy carousing at the music café, where multiple birthday parties were being held. Deep in their drinks, with music pumping through the windows, was the start of a beautiful summer season. Fifteen minutes later, the music café would be ground zero for one of the worst train derailments in Canadian history. I'm Rachel Stewart, and this is Canadian Disasters. The eastern townships form a beautiful part of the Canadian landscape. Granted, I'm pretty sure I have yet to see a part of Canada that isn't beautiful, but they stand out to me. I remember taking a drive through them right around Thanksgiving, the Canadian Thanksgiving, a few years ago. Even after years of seeing the leaves change color, I don't think I've ever seen them quite so stunningly reflected in the surface of mirrored lakes as I did that day. Lac Megantic is one of these towns. According to archaeological digs around the area, Megantic has had human contact dating back over 12,000 years, making it the oldest settlement in Quebec. Eventually, the Abenaki tribe would make a camp on the shores of Lac Megantic. Now, Megantic, like many place names in Canada, comes from the Europeanization of an indigenous word. In this case, Namesconagic, which means the salmon and trout camp. The first French and Scottish settlers to the area arrived in 1850. The town of Megantic itself was founded in 1884 by our old friends, the Canadian Pacific Railway. In this case, the CPR was laying down tracks to connect Montreal to the Atlantic coast in St. John, New Brunswick. By 1889, the line was up and running, connecting passengers and goods. One branch of the line travelled through Maine. Because, honestly, just look at a map. It's a lot faster to go through Maine than it is to go around the Gaspésie. And it is this line that will, 224 years later, create the disaster. Now, to be clear, the rail disaster in 2013 was actually not the first train derailment that Lac Megantic experienced. The first was nearly a century earlier, in 1918, but this one did not cause nearly as much damage as the 2013 one. And this first disaster did nothing to stop the trains coming. You see, Megantic relied on the trains. They were the lifeblood of the community. The whistle of the trains going by was a consistent note in the town symphony. Until the lack of one such whistle signaled disaster. Though the eventual trial and, right, spoiler alert, there will be a trial, we'll focus on the 12 hours preceding the derailment in order to understand all the factors at play in the Megantic derailment. We need to go back years, all the way to 1985, 
You see, that is the year when the CPR decided that their Montreal to St. John line was not as profitable as it had been in decades past. So bit by bit, they began selling it off to other companies, including Canada's passenger line via rail. When CPR owned the line, the tracks were in excellent condition. There were repairmen and repairers that could be counted upon to fix the issues. The tracks were checked regularly. Upon being sold to other companies, this oversight disappeared. According to Transport Canada, a rail line can still be used so long as there are fewer than 14 damaged ties within 12 meters of track. And yes, that is more than one error per meter. So, when the company Railworks bought the section of track that passed through Megantic as part of their new Montreal-Maine-Atlantic railway line, they saw no need to spend vast sums of money fixing their line. After all, they'd already spent millions lobbying in Ottawa in order to get this contract. This decision not to fix the rail lines proved deadly, given the fact that there were millions of dollars in infrastructure funding from both the Quebec and Canadian governments in order to do so. And we know Railworks knew about this money. How do we know? Well, Railworks had in fact received $15 million in funding from both governments. Where did this money go? To this day, nobody is completely sure. The official company line is that it was invested in the United States. Railworks is an American company. Its CEO is a man named Ed Burkhart. Burkhart is a man who loves two things very deeply, cutting costs and trains. He was known as such a cost cutter, in fact, that it was reported he refused to keep steady supplies of toilet paper and band-aids to his workers, which is not a great look for him. When Burkhart gets control of the Megantic line, he gets the opportunity to pursue both of his loves, another train line, and now the opportunity to slash costs. His favorite cost-cutting measure to implement was to decimate jobs. Why on earth would you need two people on board a train to keep it running safely? You could run it with just one. Well, you could run it with one, but you can't run a train safely with one person. But safety, you may have noticed, is not in the list of things that Burkhart loves. In fact, he had a terrible record when it came to safety. In the five years preceding the Megantic incident, Burkhart's trains suffered eight derailments and ten oil spills. They were nearly twice as likely to have an accident as any other line operating in North America. His safety record was so terrible that Wisconsin ended up passing a law that prevented trains from only having one worker on board because of a Burkhart train that derailed for that reason. So by 2013, Burkhart trains had the worst safety record in North America. Again, not a great look. 
Now, if Wisconsin had already passed a law banning the practice of having only one person on a train, why was it allowed to continue in Canada? There are a couple of reasons for this. Of course, we need to consider the lobbying that had already been done on behalf of MMAR. So even though Transport Canada may have balked at the idea of only having one person on board a train, they seem to have felt their hands were tied because of the powerful people lobbying for them in Ottawa. So Transport Canada didn't approve of having only one person on board a train. They also did nothing to prevent this from happening. Actually, that is a bit misleading. They, they did help. Transport Canada insisted on having a mirror installed so that engineers could see the rear of the train. Most engineers considered this mirror to be absolutely useless. So why then did the Megantiquois celebrate the MMAR coming through town? Well, because it kept jobs in the area. It kept the town afloat. And so because of this, when citizens noticed that the train tracks wobbled when the trains passed through, they said nothing. And if the sharp turn at the bottom of the valley just so happened to be in the center of downtown, well, that was just how it was. And of course, the MMA trains were carrying very important cargo oil. To be more specific, the trains were carrying tankers of Bakken shale from North Dakota, destined for the Irving Company in Atlantic Canada. Shale, you might ask? Yes. You see, this oil came directly from fracking operations. In 2008, the oil boom starts up in North Dakota. And between 2009 to 2013, there is a 28,000% increase in the amount of oil being transported to Canada. Transporting oil is a dangerous business. One oil worker noted that a train car filled with back and crude could have a lit match thrown into it, and the match would go out. However, if there was some air in that car, then a highly volatile gas could be created— one wrong move, and that train container could become an impromptu bomb. And so, to prevent impromptu bombs, there should be lots of safety measures in place in order to keep something like that from happening. Should being the operative word. You see, many of the cars carrying the oil were of the Dot 3 variety. Multiple organizations had been decrying the Dot 3 cars for their inability to carry fragile goods, in fact, it was demanded that no Dot 3 cars should be carrying oil. And when was this passed? 2004. But uh, here we are, eight years later, still using those same train cars for even more dangerous goods. Well, okay, you might be thinking to yourself, but surely if they are carrying such volatile products, they would put other safety measures in place. Yeah, uh, not so much. There was still that one-person crew, and now trains could be up to three kilometers long. So longer trains, fewer people. These longer trains were also much heavier than what the original tracks were intended to carry. 115 pounds per yard of track was actually considered unsafe by Transport Canada. With the Dot 3s filled with oil, the tonnage would routinely exceed that limit 
and not by a little either, we're talking thousands of tons. In May of 2013, only a few months before the disaster, the Canadian Pacific Union spoke publicly about the growing likelihood of a major disaster, given all the issues that the train lines were facing. Nothing was done. This takes us up to June 30th of 2013. There, in a desolate stretch of former prairie, now dust-swept and filled with fracking operations, sits Newton, North Dakota. On this day in Newton, train Canadian Pacific 282 has 78.3 train cars filled with oil. And as that black gold was being filled into the train, the bills of landing were being changed. I say changed, but I definitely mean falsified. You see, oil should be classified under the category of most dangerous good on the build of landing. But on this day, the workers changed the category of the oil to least dangerous. This would go on to be recorded as the 72nd time such a bill of landing had been falsified. Once the falsified paper was completed and all of that oil was filled inside the train, CP-282 chugged on her merry way. Now, by the time she reached her first checkpoint, one train car had to be removed for mechanical difficulties. Read, it was leaking oil onto the tracks. So once that pesky car was gone, the train heads along its route, passing Milwaukee and Chicago, before heading into Canada via Windsor. The train continues on to Toronto, where another five cars are removed for further mechanical difficulties. The train then speeds along to Montreal, to the Côté Saint-Luc train yards. Here, CP-282 is turned into MMA-02. The Quebec headquarters of the Montreal Main Atlantic Railway is located in Farnham, Quebec. Many workers on the MMA come from generations of train families. The tracks are deeply rooted in their lives. Tom Harding is no exception to this. He comes from a long line of rail workers, and he was known throughout the company as a good and diligent worker. But MMAR had already flagged him for causing problems. The sorts of problems he was supposed to have caused? Noting when trains might be too dangerous to continue to run and pushing for further safety measures. And he's not the only one. You see, MMAO2 on this particular run is being headed by the locomotive car 5017. A week previously, another engineer for MMAR insisted that 5017 was not working and needed to be taken in for repairs. This engineer sent a fax to the head office and told his supervisors not to let Harding leave with 5017 on that day. The fax and the warning were both ignored. Even if they hadn't been... The last time 5017 needed to be repaired, they fixed the hole in the locomotive with epoxy glue. Yep, epoxy glue, you heard that right. 
Turns out that's not a stopgap measure. Tom Harding begins his shift at 1.30 p.m. on July 5th, almost an hour behind when he was originally scheduled. Over the next 10 hours, he will take the Farnham to Megantic route, which is known as one of the worst sections of track in all of Canada. This is because it has near-constant elevation gains and losses, and as if that wasn't enough to deal with, it also has plenty of sharp turns to keep engineers occupied, which is hard enough to manage in the daytime, but Harding would be expected to run this train on his own through twilight and darkness hours as well. Well, sure, you might be thinking, but engineers would have had training for that situation, right? And you would sort of be correct. You see, MMAR gave each operator of the farnham Megantic stretch a half hour of training on the train in its line once. But off Harding goes on a trip he's made countless times before. Shortly after he begins, though, Harding radios into Farnham to let the office know that his locomotive isn't working well. Farnham isn't interested in this information. Even after, Harding includes the fact that he doesn't know if his train will be able to make these steep slopes. Oh, and by the way, the train is also spitting up occasional fireballs? The office's response to this? Don't worry about it. We'll fix it once it arrives in Bangor. So over the next few hours, the train continues to chug steadily, beginning to smoke more and more. The smoke becomes darker and darker until it is described as fully black. Droplets of crude oil are also beginning to coat the rickety tracks as MMAO2 goes along its route. Now, miraculously, Harding manages to pull the train into Nantes at 11 p.m. He parks the train where he has been directed. On a slope. On a declining slope. On a declining slope that is about 11 kilometers away from Megantic. Sometimes trains would be able to be parked on the side of the Nantes yard. Except on this evening, those sides were full. So MMAO2 was on the main line. It was time for Harding to apply the brakes. And the brakes become a main point of contention during the trial. Standard procedure for MMA, which is what the half-hour training and uh, determination to be both cheap and fast and not problematic, means probably not the safest procedure, was to apply multiple sets of brakes. The first would be to apply the brakes in the main cab, locomotive 5017, turn on the air brakes, and then go outside and physically turn on a number of hand brakes. Oh, the hand brakes. So according to Tom Harding, he was told that the number of hand brakes needed to be applied in this situation was 10% of the number of train cars. He does some quick math and calculates that 10% of the 72 means that he should apply seven hand brakes which he does. MMAR will go on to say that, no, no, they definitely said 20%, which would have been 14. Transport Canada will argue that in order to be effective, the number of handbrakes that should have been applied was anywhere from 18 to 26. So lots of different numbers. But now with seven handbrakes applied, 
Tom returns to the main locomotive to do his effectiveness test. The effectiveness test basically boils down to, does the train move if I try to move it? If it does, the effectiveness test has been failed, and more brakes need to be applied. If it doesn't move, then the train is good. It has passed the test. Harding passes his effectiveness test, except there's a crucial error in his testing. You see, engine 5017 is actually still running. Engineers were instructed to keep at least one engine running overnight. Other than the obvious ecological impact this has, you might think that keeping the engine running all night would be a waste of money. Except, technically it's not. You see, if a train stops running completely after four hours, all brakes must be retested according to American law. And while retesting all the brakes was just going to be too time-consuming and a waste of a paid employee. So, MMAR insisted they keep at least one engine running. Now, fun fact, Canada actually allows a train to stop running for 24 hours before you have to recheck the brakes. Now, the problem is that keeping the train running allows one set of brakes to actually not be taken into consideration during Harding's effectiveness test. The automatic brakes have already been deactivated by Harding before he does this, but the air brakes are still in full force. The air brakes, which were actually broken. And the company knew that they were broken and were waiting to fix them. So hang on to those air brakes. They're going to become really important in a few minutes. Oh, and by the way, those automatic brakes that he turned off, they are considered an additional safety step. Tom usually did put them on, except that he'd recently been reprimanded because it was time-consuming to shut them off in the morning. By 11.04 a.m., Harding leaves the train. A taxi has been called from Megantic to take him to his hotel. As the taxi driver pulls up, he notices the thick black smoke pouring out of the train. Then he sees Harding covered in oil. In fact, soon enough, the windshield of his taxi will also be covered in oil. The two begin heading down the hill towards the town. Along the way, the driver asks Tom if the train is safe. Tom tells him about all the issues he's been experiencing. He also tells him, that he wished he'd been able to call the American office earlier about all his issues. Because the American office was much stricter and probably would have told him to shut the train down. But instead, when he calls to let them know that he's done for the evening, Farnham and Harding agree that they're going to let the train settle down for the evening and see what happens in the morning. Now, if either Harding or the taxi driver had turned to look back in the direction from whence they'd come, they would have seen a fire beginning to spread. At 11.50 p.m., a witness driving along the highway right next to the train line calls Surete du Québec, which is the emergency services, to inform them that there is a train on fire. Surete du Québec actually asks this witness to get close and tell them what's happening. The witness tells them, hell no, I'm not going near that. And honestly, I can't blame him. Firefighters begin to gather on scene. The first thing they do is turn off the engine so that they can safely put out the fire, which is standard protocol for firefighting. 
Firefighters then called MMAR, who sent two track foremen to the scene. The radio operator back at Farnham, a man who is named Richard Labrie, but who goes by RJ, calls Harding to let him know that his train's on fire. Harding requests permission to return to the train, but that request is denied. Why? MMA already has two track foremen up there. Why would they need a third person that they need to pay? And if those track foremen have no idea how the brakes on train work and can't tell if the train is going to go, well, that shouldn't matter, should it? The train's been parked for the night. The effectiveness test was done. Uh, turns out they probably should have called Harding. You see, when the firefighters turned off the engine, they turned off power to the air brakes. So those air brakes slowly began leaking air, rendering them useless. So by the time the firefighters leave, there was nothing anyone could do to prevent what happened next. Around 12.56 a.m., the train began its descent to Megantic below. At 1.07 a.m., one of the firefighters that had just worked on putting out the fire on the train is nearly run over by that same train speeding down the line. No lights. No whistle. By 1.14 a.m., traveling at nearly 105 kilometers an hour, MMA-02 careens into town. Unable to make that sharp turn in the downtown core, the train derails. Rivers of burning oil begin flooding out of the cars. Gilles Fluet had just left the music cafe when he spotted the train. He later said that it was going so fast, he could see the wheels were emitting white smoke. Gilles had just enough time to yell at the people behind him to run and began sprinting away from the scene. At least four explosions happened in quick succession. Those on the terrace of the cafe began running from their lives. Others in the downtown core were jumping from third-story windows in an effort to escape the oncoming inferno. The first mushroom cloud erupts. Chaos ensues. The heat of the fire was said to be so intense that people two kilometers away could feel it. Thousands of tons of oil were spilling into the underground pipes. As citizens ran for cover, manholes were being shot 50 feet into the air as the oil met the water and created fire. And a note here on the geography of the town of Megantzik. Part of what made this disaster so deadly was the fact that the train derailed in the valley part of downtown. The downtown of Megantzik is actually separated from the rest by the Chaudière River. There was only one bridge in town that connected the two sides. The bridge had the river of water beneath it and a river of boiling oil atop it. The only other bridge into town was 10 kilometers to the north, so emergency services were literally unable to get to the center of the issue. Around 2 a.m., Harding is awoken by an evacuation order. He makes his way on foot to an Esso station, horrified by the shooting high flames he's seeing. Tom calls RJ 
telling him that there's no way it's his train. R.J. agrees, but asks him to stay near the phone. Twenty-five minutes later, R.J. calls Harding back. He tells him that it is Harding's train that derailed, and it's that train that is causing this devastation. Neither can seem to believe it. To Harding's credit, he didn't curl up into a ball and wither away at this news. He, in fact, heads with some of the fire department to where more train cars have been uncoupled but are coming dangerously close to the inferno. Tom manages to move cars away from the scene three times. He attempts to go for a fourth, but is stopped by firefighters telling him that to go again would mean certain death. At 4 a.m., the second mushroom cloud erupts over the city. The nearby hospital is at Code Orange, prepared to handle waves of hurt people they are sure will be arriving soon. Hardly anybody comes. The Red Cross will later say that people either ran out of the inferno or they didn't make it at all. There was no in-between. Forty-seven people lost their lives. More completed suicide in the months and years that followed, unable to cope with the loss. The center of the town was devastated. The fire station was lost, along with City Hall. City Hall, ironically, contained the binders on what to do if a train derailment happened in the city. The library was reduced to ash, along with the city archives. Twenty families lost their homes. Scores more lost their businesses. Firefighters from as far away as New England came to help. Hundreds responded to the call to action. And as we are wont to do during a disaster, people tried immediately to cast blame. MMA was the obvious target. Ed Burkhart, to his credit, did manage to make it to the town, but if he was hoping to help things, he ended up doing far more harm than good. His prepared statement was only in English. And as many Canadians know, the fastest way to anger francophones is to come into their territory without knowing a lick of French. So his apology, if one can call it that, fell on deaf ears. MMA was also put in charge of the cleanup of the town. Yes, the same company that caused the problem was responsible for cleaning it up. Now, Burkhart also seemed to agree with the citizens that as the company responsible for the disaster, you know, his company should be the one to pay for the cleanup. And this would be a magnanimous gesture if Burkhart wasn't fully aware that he only had $25 million in disaster insurance for MMAR, and the total for cleanup was rapidly approaching the hundreds of millions. Burkhart would later say that it was a bad day for money. So soon after the disaster, MMA ended up declaring bankruptcy, leaving the town responsible for paying for its own disaster repair. But in case you are worried, don't. Ed Burkhart is still 100% owner of both a Polish and Estonian train line, having established them right after the fall of the Berlin Wall, so he's doing just fine. Now, eventually, R.J., Tom, and the manager of train operations for MMA, Quebec, a man named Jean Demaitre, are charged and put on trial. All were eventually found not guilty. Transport Canada, 
does investigate the derailment. In its first report, it comes out strongly denouncing the actions of MMA as a company. But those lobbyists come back, and it slowly backtracks over subsequent reports. Much like the Air India disaster, despite repeated calls for an inquiry, none have happened. The people of Megantic were forced to take class-action lawsuits in the hopes of recouping something for the loss of their loved ones. Many Megantiquois still feel abandoned. The town continues to ask tourists to come, but also asks that people continue to talk about the disaster and all the issues that occurred. Many still continue to clench their fists or tense their shoulders when that train whistle sounds. You see, the trains do in fact still pass through Megantic. They have since five months after the derailment. The downtown took much longer to rebuild. We can only hope that Transport Canada and other rail lines push for stronger safety measures in the future so that derailments like this may never happen again. I'm Rachel Stewart, and this has been Canadian Disasters, True North Strong and Destructive.